1: Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I'm your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Jacqueline Friedman. Jacqueline is a writer and activist. Her latest book is Unscrewed, Women, Sex, Power, and How to Stop Letting the System Screw Us All.
0: Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me.
1: I hope that by the end of today's episode, we have dismantled mm, 30% of the system.
0: Oh, yeah, at least. for sure. That's our goal.
1: And that's, yeah, that's the benchmark. So for this to be a good show, we have to get 30% reduction.
0: I'm I'm ready. I mean, 30% at least. Yeah, I'm ready.
1: All right, great. Well, you're ready. I'm ready. Why don't we get started? Uh, Would you please read the first letter for us?
0: Absolutely. Subject, misguided misgendering. Dear Prudence, I'm seeking advice on when, if ever, it's okay to misgender someone. I'm a queer woman who recently misgendered my non-binary partner to make a doctor's visit easier for myself, and now I'm wondering why that was my impulse. I was getting tested for STIs when a former sex partner suggested I do so, and while with the doctor, I described my current partner as she. I didn't want to have to deal with the assumption that I was straight. The nurse had already asked about my partner using male pronouns. But I also didn't want to deal with explaining non-binary identity to a doctor on top of my queerness. Now I wonder if I was being a coward. I never gave my doctor a chance to understand, and it's probably good for her to learn about these issues for me so the burden doesn't fall on trans folks. Is it ever okay to misgender someone?
1: Uh, I do think I have an answer to the kind of first question or the first implicit question, which is, I'm wondering why that was my impulse. And I think the answer is there in your letter um, to make the doctor's visit easier for yourself. And I'm not saying that to be like real, real hard on you. You were not, you know, like, I think actively trying to harm your partner. um, But that's why you did it. Um, And it's important to pay attention to those moments and to say, you know, am I weighing different things appropriately? Is it the best possible good to do that here? But yeah, I think that that's why you did it. You, You wanted to make the doctor's visit easier. And that's why that was your impulse.
0: Yeah, I have literally had this doctor's visit when my partner was trans, but the difference was I had had this conversation with my partner before and he had said uh, that it was really fine for me to say whatever I needed to sort of get through the doctor's visit. And so I think that that, you know, my advice here, sort of the second question is like the best way around this is just to talk to the person at the center of this who's your partner.
1: Yeah, that's uh, an excellent way of approaching this. Because the question is not, is it ever okay to misgender someone? What you're asking is, specifically, in this instance, was what I did okay? Um, And and I can't give you either a stamp of approval or a stamp of disapproval. This is a really good opportunity to say, hey, um, do you have an opinion or a preference on how you would like me to refer to you when I'm with a doctor? And I do think, because a lot of times people will say, you know, well, what about all these increasingly unlikely scenarios that I might have to do it? Um, there, There are, you know, Medically necessary reasons, especially if you're getting STI testing um, for you to discuss with a doctor the type of sex you are having um because different types of sex with different organs um can can you know communicate different risks. So don't feel like there's no reason to to go into, you know, physically specific details with a doctor who is asking you about the kind of sex you are have for the purpose of determining what kind of STI screening you should be having
0: right. It's just vulnerable, right? Like you're there, you're sort of half naked. You may not know your doctor very well. It can't. I I have a lot of empathy for that impulse, um, and you just sort of want to get through that. And you don't know, especially if the nurse already made the wrong assumption. You don't know if it if it's a safe and okay place to talk about this stuff. So, and and I also feel like if you're going to misgender someone, which I certainly don't recommend doing without their permission this is the the least bad way to do it in the sense that you're not even using their name like you're you're misgendering them in principle but it's not not directly harming them it's it is just as the you know as you point out letter writer that um you're missing out on an opportunity to make life easier for trans and non binary people
1: yeah, i'll 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 throw this out there, too. I think one of the things that you you don't have to explain everything to your doctor. um, you can just say, You know, my partner is non-binary' And then, you know, if they're a little thrown by that, you don't have to launch into a 20 minute explanation. You can just say it. And then later, if they say, "Okay," but specifically for the purpose of this test, I want to know what's the last type of sex you most recently had. um, And then you can say that without necessarily going into detail about somebody else's gender identity. Um, But I think part of the reason that this anxiety might be coming up is there's that sort of fear, like there's that sort of transphobic idea of especially when it comes to non-binary identities, you know, that sort of like, okay. Okay, but what is it really? You know, when it mm. comes down to it, there's only like these categories. And that's the realest thing in the world. And when you're like facing the doctor, you have to pick one. And that's ultimate reality. And everything else that you're doing or thinking about or identifying as is just window dressing. And I feel like that's maybe why some of this anxiety is coming up for you is like, did I participate in that? Am I really buying into that? And and I don't think that I, I get why that feels stressful. And I would just say to that, yes, of course, um, it is medically important to share with a doctor specific details of the kind of sex that you're having. It's also not in any way the only or ultimate or most important truth about your partner um, or your gender identity or the nature of your relationship. Um, it's just, you know, body parts and blood tests and uncomfortable chairs and bright lights, which we all have to deal with. Yes. Yes. I got nothing to add to that. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't beat yourself up too much. Do check in with your partner.
0: And when you have the opportunity, when you feel like you have the the sort of wherewithal doing that education and being willing to have those conversations is always a good thing.
1: Yeah. All right. So we're starting off with, uh, I think, a fairly easy to adjudicate issue. And I hope we just get more and more complicated. I'm kind of curious about this next one because I feel like it's really going to depend. Our answers are really going to depend on our own sort of um, work history in a sense of like what's expected in an office. So I'm excited to see how close um, our perspectives are on this. But the subject of this next letter is assistant boundaries. Dear Prudence, a friend of mine is an assistant to an executive and I'm a staffer to a public figure. Recently, we were talking about boundaries with our bosses and realized we had no idea what appropriate boundaries were. Our bosses often contact us well after traditional work hours and expect immediate responses and ask us to do tasks that are quite personal. My boss often says hurtful things to me and says hurtful things about my colleagues in my presence. Luckily, my friend does not share this experience. Do we have any options here? How much are assistants supposed to put up with? Some of this feels like abusive behavior, but our colleagues don't seem especially concerned by it. Neither do other assistants in a Facebook group my friend is in.
0: Ah, I mean, there's so many questions in here. I feel like the thing that stands out perfectly clearly to me, and which is like the easy lying fruit that I'll start with, is it's not okay for your boss to say hurtful things to you. That's not okay in any work milieu, I, d- I don't think.
1: I just don't know what the hurtful things are. Like right. if it's a belittling comment about your appearance, yeah, that falls into a category of clearly not okay. If it's, My boss is curt and kind of snaps when things don't get done on time in a way that hurts my feelings. That may not be pleasant, but that's not necessarily unprofessional or wrong. Um, So, uh, yeah, hurtful here is so vague that I'm just afraid I'm not sure that I could make any sort of official ruling about whether or not it's appropriate.
0: All right, that's fair. But if if there are personal insults in, involved, it's definitely across the line, Absolutely. no matter where you work or who you work for, unless you're like a professional submissive, and that's been negotiated.
1: <laughs> right, which I, <laughs> I don't think is what's going on here. Yeah, so like, <laughs> if your boss is saying things like you know i i don't know if like off the cuff they're really frustrated with your like coworker patrick and they're just like man patrick is always late to meetings that that's one category if they're like i think patrick is a worthless piece of shit and i don't know why we keep him around here anymore yeah that that's absolutely over the line you know beyond the pale Clearly, a sign that your boss has super bad boundaries. But without further details, there, I just, I just don't know. I will say this: when it comes to being a staffer to a public figure or an executive assistant, um, based on my admittedly limited knowledge of what those jobs are like, it's pretty customary for hours to be flexible. It is not unusual for an executive assistant to be um, available after nine to five.
0: Yeah, that seems clear. Although, you know, I would hope you had a conversation when you were hired or at some point about what the expectations were and is there a day that you can genuinely be off duty or, you know, are you literally on call 24-7 that I hope that the terms are at least made clear. You have the right to expect that. Exactly.
1: And if they're not clear, you can ask for that Um, and you can frame it. Both of you can frame it in a way of like, um, I'm still kind of getting my bearings in terms of what's customary around this office. It seems like there's oftentimes after work that you have questions that need pretty immediate answers. Um, I do want to be available within reason, but I also want to check in with you. You know, like, are there certain hours where not not asking, but like there's certain hours where I might I'm not going to be able to get back to you immediately. I I just want to check in about that or, um, you know, ask other people who have maybe been executive assistants for a while you know, hey, what's kind of within the realm of normal executive assistant requirements, and what falls into the category of really ridiculous? He's texting me at midnight, you know, every night, being like, "Where's my wallet?" That 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 that's something where there's a wide variety of possible. Some a lot of stuff could feel really strange compared to your friend who's an accountant, um, but is not necessarily out of bounds for the job of executive assistant.
0: I mean, I feel like the the subtext of this question is super interesting. And for me, there's like two subtexts. One is about the gig economy and the other is about assistance and gender and emotional labor. Right. So on the one hand, what we're talking about is the fact that work has gotten so much less structured for a lot of people and that employment is less secure, and there are just fewer rules. And that means that people who have less power in the workplace tend to have l- less negotiating power. Like, Because I, I think the real question here is like, what are my options? And I don't know that they have any options, because I bet if you work for a public figure that there are a ton of people who want to take that person's call at midnight and are willing to put up with the abuse, and if if that's what's happening. Um, and that might be the response you get. So that's, I mean, it's a symptom of the way that our economics are structured, that a lot of people are really at will, and we don't have a lot of workplace protections around this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and and I'll say, I think, you know, being asked to do personal tasks, yeah, if if you're a personal assistant or an executive assistant whose job does involve some personal aspects, like if they're saying, hey, I, you know, need help picking up dry cleaning... Or I I need you to kind of be on call while I'm like scheduling a -a rent-a-car as I'm like doing this other meeting or, you know, can you stop by my house and water some plants? Uh, That does kind of fall within the category of normal personal tasks. If it's something like, I don't know, I need you to take my wife out to dinner for our anniversary because I'm going to be working, (laughs) you know, that would probably not be normal.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of question mark question mark in here. I was a personal assistant for a while. And I did all kinds of wacky stuff like, find a Hello Kitty toaster to give as a birthday present and like wait for to let some repair person in. And you know, like, I did all that fun stuff, figure out how to get their knives sharpened. And that's fine. But yeah, again, like there are also there's personal and there's personal. So I think that there's a lot of we don't entirely know what's going on here. But one of the things I kind of suspect is going on here, if I'm reading the subtext right, is there's just a lot of expectation of emotional labor. And I think that traditionally the assistant job is gendered female and that executives and public figures expect people who have less powerful than them slash their assistants slash women to sort of just clean up after their messes and aren't very careful with their feelings or boundaries or any of that 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 in some ways the assistant position especially a personal assistant position is set up to be boundaryless in a way that just might be uncomfortable and not a good fit for the writer and that's really okay like it's a lot it's good to know that i think it's good that like
1: you're, you say your colleagues don't seem especially concerned by it, neither do other assistants in a Facebook group. This is, I think, a good opportunity to kind of um, collect more information, try to find out from as many people in your field as possible. Um, is this kind of typical Um, And, and if so, is this the industry that you want to be in? Like, is this the kind of job that you want to have? Um, You know, if you ask like 15 people who have all been working in this field for a number of years, they're like, yep, it's, it's pretty normal to get texts at all hours to kind of constantly be available and to do a lot that's both very like professional office client facing and a lot of personal one-on-one um, household, domestic uh, errands, Um, you know, if you're like, boy, that job sounds terrible and I don't like it, and I especially don't like the gendered way in which it's set up, then that's really good information to have. And, and that would probably mean it's time to start looking for another kind of job.
0: Yes. Amen. And in the
1: meantime, in the meantime, if your boss is saying unnecessarily hurtful things about your colleagues, there's obviously a limit to which you can push back, especially if, you know, it's a sort of personal and professional relationship. But, you know, if they're saying something really over the line, you can say, like, hey, please don't say that to me. Or, you know, that's not helpful information for me to have. Do you mind sharing that either with the employee in question or with somebody else who can help you do something about it?
0: The great thing the great thing about setting boundaries is that you always learn information, right? Because how your boss responds if you set that kind of boundary is just going to tell you more about the kind of job you have and what the expectations are. And it may not be the information you want, right? It may not be good news, but it it gives you more information so that you can make a better decision for yourself. Right.
1: Because right now, the biggest problem, you know, in addition to the way that the bosses are sort of speaking to to the letter writer and the letter writer's friend, um, is, is just this sense of, I don't know what's typical for this industry. I don't know if this is normal behavior or if I'm being taken advantage of um and so the more you can learn by the way not that those things are mutually exclusive right. it could be the norm for this industry to take advantage of personal assistance you know the more information you have at at the very least the more you'll feel empowered to make different decisions yeah and good luck you know this may be one of those jobs that you learn a lot from mostly in the sense of you learn what kind of jobs you don't want to do ever
0: Go watch Devil Devil's Devil Wears Prada and you'll feel like you have some company. <laughs> Maybe wait until after
1: you've moved on to a different
0: job before you watch the Devil <laughs> after Wears Prada. After you've already thrown the phone in the fountain. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
1: Hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May seventeenth. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right. Uh, would you uh, read this next letter? By the way, oh. this next letter's subject line is not at all accurate, um, but I thought it was important to leave it in because I think it reflects a fear that the letter writer has that we can um, hopefully help them dispel.
0: I think so. This This letter gave me all of my feelings. Um, the subject is fake lesbian, question mark. Dear Prudence, I'm 24 The woman I love recently asked me to marry her, and I said yes. I should be overjoyed, but a possibly ridiculous fear keeps attacking me. I'm scared I'm not really a lesbian. I never came out as such. I was forcibly outed when I was 15, when a boy stalking me went through my Facebook, found messages between me and the girl I was in love with at the time, and posted them publicly. My parents found out and were horrified. They sent me to a therapist to, quote, correct me. I left home at 18 and am estranged from them now. I didn't want to date boys in college, but assumed I was straight and just hadn't met the right man yet until I met my wonderful girlfriend and just couldn't help myself when she asked me out on a date. It's been five years now, and though I love my girlfriend, I'm honestly terrified that my therapist and parents were right and that I am actually straight and just scared of real relationships with men. My therapist was convinced that my having had bad experiences with boys stalking slash assaulting me had caused me to think that I didn't like men. I'm not sure it's right to let my amazing girlfriend marry someone who might wake up at some point and realize this whole thing was just a phase after all. Should I tell her my fears? Is it unfair to her if I don't? I've never shared this fear with anyone and need advice. Oh, So
1: just right off the bat. No, what you are dealing with is, you know, deeply internalized homophobia and trauma. Just to be super clear, right out of the gate.
0: Yes. And I'm I mean, so the letter sorry. is so clear. You're not interested in dating men. You've really it doesn't sound like you've ever found a man you wanted to date, but you couldn't help saying yes to your girlfriend. You're clearly madly in love with her. Like yeah. Your parents and this therapist have fucked you up. And I'm irate at them, if I'm being perfectly honest. It's
1: it's horrible. It's, it's horrible. And I'm so sorry, because this is the kind of situation where I would often say, I, I think a therapist would really helpful to you. But this this is a woman who's been deeply traumatized by therapy. Um, therapy has been wielded as like a homophobic weapon against her in order to shame and confuse her and make her feel responsible for having been, you know, stalked. So I I don't want to just say lightly, you know, go see a good therapist and you'll feel great. But oh, man, please, please do feel free to share this with your girlfriend. Please share this with your friends. Share this with people that you know and trust and love. Not in the sense of, I think there's any validity to your concern as to whether or not you legitimately love women or are a lesbian, um, but in the sense that like, you have been traumatized about your lesbianism from a very formative age um, and people have made you feel personally responsible for the ways in which your family and men have harmed you.
0: Yes. And I do want to say like depending on where you live now, you may be able to find a therapist who specializes in LGBTQ issues and you could even find a lesbian therapist, a therapist who's an actual lesbian, yeah. So, um so don't think all therapists are like that therapist and and again, depending on where you live, it's it's perfectly possible to search for and, you know, on the phone, you know, before you even meet them in person when you're screening therapists say what's your feelings about lesbians? (laughs) You know, you'll get a sense from them pretty right off the bat. The bat. So you you deserve a, a really actually good qualified therapist and the support of your sweet fiance, like who probably is going to, I hope, like wrap her arms around you and, and kiss your brow and tell you that those people really did you wrong.
1: Yeah. And if she knows anything about your history and you were to share this fear with her, I think she would, like us, be able to pretty immediately um, not dismiss your fears, but say... I see where these fears are coming from, and they're coming from years of trauma and homophobia. You know, take another look at your letter, letter writer. You you don't say anything about, I think about being with men. I sometimes think about being bisexual. I sometimes think about being heterosexual. Um, I'm not really sure that I love my girlfriend. It's all doubt about yourself as a result of specific particular acts of abuse. Like, I can't really be a lesbian because I didn't come out. Uh, Because I was forcibly outed. As if coming out is what makes you a lesbian. You know, something was taken from you, right? Like you were denied the opportunity to come out when you were ready, when you felt safe, when you wanted to, because a man was stalking and harassing you, and that's terrible. And that doesn't make you any less of a lesbian. That just means that you're a lesbian who was hurt by a homophobic man. And, you know, your parents attempted to send you to corrective therapy, which is abusive. Um, and I'm so glad that you're estranged from them now. I'm so glad that you left home and that you're no longer in contact with these people. But, yeah, I, I think that, you know, that that message that you continued to absorb even after you were out of contact with them was, well, if I don't want to date boys, it's either because I haven't met the right one yet or because I've had a bad experience. There's sort of nothing that can happen or that nothing that you can feel that could rule out men as an option in this framework. And then on the other hand, there's kind of no degree to which you could love, be with, be attracted to, be interested in women that would actually prove your genuine sexual orientation, right? Like, if you're not interested in guys, it's because you haven't met the right one or because another guy hurt you. It's sort of like impossible to rule them out under this framework. And then on the flip side... You know, if all you want to do is date women, you fall in love with a specific woman, you want to get married to a woman, there's always a reason for this framework to invalidate that. So you kind of can't
0: win. It's such a mindfuck. But I want to say to you, letter writer, that you sound so in love with this woman in your letter. Like oh, your yeah. love for her is so palpable and apparent that it it's it's lovely and it's heartbreaking that you are not able to be just bathing and wallowing in it right now. And it makes me, again, very, very angry. Yeah.
1: I mean, the harm that was perpetrated against you was real. It was ongoing. It was psychological as well as like emotional and physical and, and, and psychosexual. And um, it's big and it's real. And I, I I, encourage you to share this with your girlfriend, um, possibly with some of your friends you trust. Hopefully someday with a therapist, although, again, I understand if the idea of contacting a therapist is just like, absolutely, I cannot do that. Maybe even finding um, a local like um, support group for lesbians and bisexual women. Any any place where you can be around other queer women and share some of your experience um, and be reassured um, that you are not a lesbian uh because a guy stalked you. Like you were, you know, you say your therapist was convinced that you're having had bad experiences with guys made you think you didn't like men. Not that I think it's worth engaging with ridiculous homophobic arguments like that, but sometimes when that voice gets in your head, it might be helpful just to address it with reality cuz sometimes those voices that got implanted in us at a young age seem really convincing. So when that voice is like, well maybe it was just a bad experience with that guy stalking me, you can just say actually um, he stalked me after I was already talking with this girl right like you were interested in this mm-hmm. girl before he did that or to say uh, lots of heterosexual women who get stalked or harassed by men um, still like men like stalking and harassment don't change your sexual orientation they can create trauma um, or or inform behaviors or reactions um, but they don't alter the gender that you're attracted to that's you know, if if that were the case, why wouldn't a straight woman who was harassed by a man, uh, you know, why w- why wouldn't the same thing happen to her in reverse? Like, again, not that I think it's super useful to spend a ton of time having an argument with your
0: there'd be so many
1: lesbians. <laughs> yeah, it, that's just that's that's not how sexuality <laughs> works. Um, again, I don't want to say that nobody can ever um, uh, experience like a trauma. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't change your life or change the way that you interact with people. I just mean it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't change your sexual orientation.
0: Can I give a podcast recommendation? Please. Yeah. So if you are feeling like you don't have enough access to queer culture or lesbian or queer friends, I really recommend the podcast Nancy, which is all about sort of a wide variety of people living a wide variety of queer identities. And especially thinking about it right now, because this season they're running kind of a a project on helping people find what they call a gaggle, but sort of a a group of friends who are gay, lesbian, bi, trans, etc. So if you're feeling isolated and like you don't have enough people around you who value and affirm you, Nancy is a great place to start. That's a great recommendation. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah, share this with your girlfriend. Share this with, you know, anyone – that you want to, that you feel safe and comfortable with. Um, you deserve all the help and support in untangling the effects of years of trauma. And I'm I'm just really sorry. And, and just if nothing else, you say you're not sure it's right to let your amazing girlfriend marry someone who might wake up at some point and realize that this was a phase. I, I just, that to me is so clearly not the voice of truth speaking uh, from within you. That is clearly... A fear born out of um, the very real harms that were perpetrated against you. It's not that your girlfriend is this amazing, wonderful woman, and you are a damaged and confused person who isn't really gay. Um, you're a gay woman who has been harmed, specifically because of her gayness. And you deserve help and support, both from your girlfriend, from the lesbian community, from your friends, from the, like the, the therapeutic community. I don't know if that's really a phrase. Um, that's reality. Not that you're on the verge of you know waking up from a decade-long lesbian nap
0: <laughs> and sorry i don't mean to say like i don't mean to make light of the, the what you're feeling no right now. i was actually just thinking how pleasant that sounds but um well because it just like when you say it out loud you realize how ridiculous their claims yes. sound like yeah no well and you're perfectly cl- you're perfectly right in pointing out that when she was outed it was because she was already interested in a woman like it's Right. There's, there's nothing in your story that suggests you've ever been interested in a man. Yeah. Don't let these people colonize your head any more than they've already done so.
1: Right. But also don't feel like, you know, just snap out of it. Like, you, you deserve help sure. in dealing with these voices. They're not going to go away overnight. But they're not true. They're not real. Um, They are not, like, the real you trying to speak Um, from from within the depths. You are not doing anything wrong by marrying your girlfriend, who you love. But you do deserve the chance to tell her the things you're afraid of so you don't feel alone. That's that's the important thing.
0: I just don't want them to steal
1: your joy. Yeah. They've already tried to take so much from you and they fucking suck. Yes. They have a lot to answer for. All right. So really different tactic. Moving on from (laughs) that. um, The subject of this next letter is am I really too old? Um, And the the answer we're just going to go with right now is probably not. Let's find out. Dear Prudence. So many of your answers are directed to younger people struggling with relationships, work questions, or children, but I feel so sidelined. Maybe by myself. I'm 71, and two years ago, my husband with MS went to live in a nursing home after living under my care for many years. I couldn't handle it anymore. Since then, my efforts to reclaim a joyous life for myself keep crashing. I have less energy and more fears. I'm older and uglier. I have less money, and I'm only feeling sadness at my loss. Help. I mean, sorry, that is a big think, one. It's it's
0: like, yes,
1: what do I <laughs> do with this next phase of my life? It's like a big, big question.
0: Yeah, I I think the place I want to start with this question is kind of at the end where where the letter writer says, I'm only feeling s- sadness at my loss. And I kind of want to say to you, maybe what you need right now is to make yourself some room and space and, and get support for feeling that sadness and loss and that you might have to experience that before you can find your way to another season of of joy. You know, we can't necessarily have all of these things simultaneously. I think often we can have them sequentially. Um, so I wonder if you have people you can talk to Or even I wonder if there are people at the nursing home. I bet there are partners of people in the nursing home who are in the same position. Um, It'd be great to meet with them. But it may be that you need to make some space first to be where you are emotionally, which is harder.
1: Yeah. And, you know, mostly I just want to start by saying, I hear you. That's really rough. It It is rough to have not a lot of energy and a lot of fear. It is difficult to figure out what do I do when a lot of my identity for the last like big chunk of my life was about caring for my husband and now that's gone and I I kind of don't know who I am without that. And also not having enough money is a big big problem. Yeah. Like it makes a material difference in terms of what you can do on like if you had a ton of money, I would say like great travel the world, go to Paris, get a dance instructor, you know, like do whatever you feel like cuz you've got cash. And when it's like, mm, I can afford to like go to the 7-Eleven later this week, you know, that's a real um that puts a real dampener on the sort of like live, laugh, love advice I would like to give you.
0: Yeah, although I mean again, and and so much of this varies according to where you live and what's available, but this is kind of cheesy advice, but I think it's true, or I've found it true for my own life that When I'm feeling really stuck and blue about my own life and my own problems, which may be super real. And again, I I agree, like your problems are real and your feelings are real and legitimate. But sometimes when I feel stuck in that place, doing something for other people is paradoxically the way to get out of it. So you may not be able to fly to Paris and get a dance instructor, which does sound like a delightful plan if you had the cash. You might be able to volunteer at the local animal shelter, which almost always needs people to cuddle the rescued pets, right? Like, And while there, you might p- meet other people who like animals, right? Sort of think about... Are there places that you can plug in in your community where you can feel useful and connected um, just on a a small, not very ambitious level? Like try one hour a week. Yeah,
1: I, I I do like that. idea. I don't think it's always like the full solution to anyone's problem. But I think often when you're dealing with kind of like a big, big picture issue, like what am I doing with my life? Being, looking for ways to be of service and, and get a little outside of your own head is often a one helpful strategy, um, and I think that that would be great. Which is not to say, like, hey, you were just somebody's caretaker for 25 years. Now just go do right. that <laughs> again all the time. Um, but, yeah, to look for small ways in which you can feel like you're useful, like you're needed, um, like you're helping um, somebody else who needs help. And animals are often pretty great for that. Um So, yeah, I think that's helpful. I think it's also don't put yourself under additional pressure by saying like, oh, man, I am in my 70s. I have limited time in which to reclaim a joyous life. So every day that I feel, you know, non-energetic, fearful, uh, down on my appearance, I'm Like, not only feeling bad on that day, I'm also, like, letting the days when I should be enjoying my golden years slip away and I'm failing myself by not, like, leaping out of bed every morning and being like that lady on that episode of 30 Rock who's like, I love New York in the springtime as she walks down the street in, like, a really (laughs) snazzy blazer. Like, don't put too much pressure on yourself to be, like, full of joy and abundance.
0: Yeah, that's a super head trip. My partner and I call that having feelings about your feelings. You know, it's bad enough, like you may be having some difficult feelings, but we can most of the time avoid having feelings about our feelings or not give in to that impulse, right? Like, I wish I felt better. Now I feel shitty that I don't feel better. And, you know, it's sort of like this meta level of misery. So you may not be able to do as much as you want about the base level of, you know, actual grief and loss that is happening as you go through a major life change. But you definitely don't need to lean into the impulse to give yourself that head trip. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. And and to just say, to look both for opportunities to do the things that you enjoy, to, you know, prioritize the relationships that are meaningful to you, um, to do things for yourself, even if they aren't big ticket items or, um, expensive that, that make you feel better. And to also give yourself permission to say like today, um, I feel lousy. Um, I'm just, I'm experiencing loss. Like the loss you're experiencing is very real. Um, and, and I hope that you don't spend too much time, um, beating yourself up for saying like, I don't feel energetic today. I feel afraid about the future and you know, I, I, I don't feel great about where I'm at in my life. Like not to either say like, yes, the only option then is to wallow in despair, Um, But but neither is the option to say, like, no, 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 I will I will only, you know, drink a green juice while leaping into the sunrise.
0: (laughs) I do have like a little uh, pleasure exercise to recommend that's from my second book, What You Really, Really Want, which is literally just to make a list of things that feel good to you in an uncomplicated way, they don't make you feel good, but guilty or good, but you're spending too much money on them or whatever. But just like, simple things like, do you like walking barefoot through grass or taking a bath or brushing or oiling your hair? Um, You know, like, really, really simple pleasures and and make like a little list of them. So if you're feeling at a loss and you want to comfort yourself or move away, you know, take a little break from the feelings of sadness and and grief that you're feeling, you'll have a little resource, you have a little cheat sheet ready. You can be like, well, I'll pick one of the activities on that list.
1: Yeah, man. Yeah. and And just to say like, if mentally you were like, what I wanted to do today was, you know, run four miles, and what I have the energy to do is walk around the block, um, that that is okay. Like, if there are moments where the idea you had in your head is something you wanted to do does not match up to your energy levels, um, I think sometimes it can be help- helpful to say, well, what's a different version of that that's maybe smaller or lower impact? I know, like, this is very, like, This is the kind of advice that I hear get tossed around a lot, but like even something as simple as just like, all right, part of me just wants to sit on the couch all day and and watch TV and feel terrible. And sometimes those are great choices. And sometimes that can actually make you feel worse in the long run. Um, So sometimes it can be helpful to say like, what if I take a walk around the block? And if it's just awful and I'm miserable the whole time, I can come back here and sit on the couch. Um, But if the, you know, walking around the block goes okay, maybe I'll go another block. Um, And sometimes starting to do a small thing can turn into a slightly bigger thing. Um, I would also say, you know, I, you don't mention, like, I don't have a lot of friends or I do have friends, but I don't talk to them. So I don't know what that is like for you if you're close to any family or friends. But um, I, I hope you can share this with some of the people in your life. I know sometimes it feels like, well, I'll call people if I have good news or something to say, but I feel embarrassed or self-conscious at the idea of calling someone or texting someone or emailing someone and saying, I feel bad and lonely and directionless. How are you? How can you help me be a person who's alive <laughs> and, and also suffering? Because um, we don't want to be a burden on our friends. We don't want to feel like complainers. And, you know, it, it doesn't sound like you have been in the habit of like calling up everyone, you know, and just doing nothing but complain nonstop. So, it, you know, if it would help you to share this with some of the people in your life, they might not know that you feel this way just to say like, hey, I'm just not doing great. That that might go a long way um, towards making you feel less. I kind of wish actually I could put you in touch with our last letter writer given that you say your, your your age in some ways makes you feel kind of sidelined. Um, I wish you could just kind of like help one another out, like just listen to one another, feel useful to one another, reflect like empathy, connection, love at one another. That's very hippie of me. But I just kind of wish that I could put you two in touch, not that you could solve one another's problems ultimately, but just just so you could feel like you were doing something helpful.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why I wondered if the nursing home maybe has some kind of program for partners of residents, you know, that there must be people who are also in similar situations that you can just share space together.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and now I just feel like I'm just going off on a tangent, but I'm trying to think of like, maybe there's like a big brothers, big sisters program in your neighborhood and you could like help a child or like some of this is very up in the air, sort of like, you could just become like the new Mr. Rogers of your neighborhood. Um, And that's a lot, given that you say you don't have a ton of energy. But, you know, it's a big problem. It's a big problem that affects numerous um, areas of your life. Some of it, I think, is very much born from the real grief at the loss of your husband, um, which is in some ways less than a death and in other ways is effectively a death in in as much as you two are no longer able to live together um, as spouses. Um, and, and that's a very real change in the nature of your relationship. Well, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. I know that these were kind of a lot of, uh, smaller nebulous answers to a big problem. And I'm just also very aware as I'm answering this question that, you know, I can have all the empathy and suggestions in the world. And I'm also 31 years old answering your question. There's a 40 year difference between the two of us. There are things you're experiencing, That just have not come down the pike for me yet. um, And that, you know, really materially affect um, how you move in the world and how you are received and treated by others. And I just I just feel like it's worth acknowledging. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, We're going back to, I think, a a slightly like telescoped in problem. Like this is a problem with a clearer (laughs) answer, which is
0: good, I think. Would you please read this next one? Yeah, I feel like this one has a really clear answer. Right. The subject is <laughs> the subject is shoes off in the house. Dear Prudence. I grew up in an Asian household, and our rule for family and guests was no shoes in the house. This is how I prefer it. My husband is white and he is not very diligent about the no shoes rule, but I can live with it because he generally tries. The problem is his father. We have a great relationship with his dad, but he wears shoes in our house, even after doing yard work. He always ends up tracking dirt everywhere, even the bathroom. He also puts his feet up on the couch in shoes. All this makes me very anxious. How do we address this? We have talked to him about this in the past, but he doesn't remember or notice in the moment. He visits a couple times a year at most. So is this even a battle worth fighting? I feel very resentful when I see him walking through our home in dirty shoes, and I hate having to rid the bathroom floor of dirt and debris every night after he goes to bed. This is fixable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's wrong and you're right is the first thing I want to say. You have a rule in your house. You've asked him to adhere to it, and he's refusing to in a fairly egregious way. So the first thing I want to say is... Obviously, it's worth it to you to address it because you've taken the time to write in.
1: And because you have to clean up the bathroom every time he visits.
0: Yeah. But the thing I also want to say is I think this is actually on your husband. It's his dad. And if somebody has to lay down the law in a stronger way that makes him hear it, I think that this falls on your husband.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so I think the conversation to have here is two 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 things. One is... We've had the big picture conversations with your dad before he visits. Doesn't really work. Can you please, when he visits, if he's doing it in the moment, say, oh, hey, dad, remember, take your shoes off or please don't put your feet up on the ottoman with your shoes on. That's
0: easy. The couch, the couch. He puts his feet in his shoes on the couch. I am not a neatnik, but I myself am horrified by that. Yeah. And to just
1: say, you know, "I I I would love you to run interference on that. And hopefully he does that if he ever fails to. You can absolutely just say like, hey, Chuck, I bet his name is Chuck. "Um, Can you take your (laughs) shoes off, please? Like that's totally normal, totally appropriate, totally fine to say. And I think maybe the bigger conversation to have with your husband would just be a sense because you say he's not great about it either. Um, And to just just do a check in and just say like, hey, so here's this thing. You don't do it a lot. Your dad's worse at it. Here's the effect that it has on me. When your dad visits... Um, I have to clean the bathroom floor because he does yard work and tramp stuff in. I have to clean the couch. Like, I'm I'm, I'm picking up after your father's mess and sometimes yours. I don't love doing that. That doesn't bring me joy. That's not why I wanted to marry you. That's not something that, like, gets me out of bed in the morning, like, can't wait to clean leaves out of the bathroom because my father-in-law wore his boots inside. And I don't mean to say that so that you can be really snarky at your husband, but to kind of illustrate, like, you know, houses don't stay magically clean um, on their own. Um, And the request that you have made is really simple and it would mean a lot to you. It would demonstrate respect and care for the work that you do in the home. Um, If your husband would spend a little more time thinking about it for his, uh, you know, for his own behavior um, and would also just quickly and quietly remind his dad to do the same thing. It would take four seconds for your husband to say this. And it takes, you know, oh, a lot longer to scrub the couch, scrub the bathroom floor.
0: I would further propose that if your husband fails to do this with his father, that your husband needs to clean up the couch and the bathroom floor. Yeah, I I think that's a great idea um, and not at all unreasonable. And yeah, you know, it's a
1: couple times a year. This isn't really a battle. Like, this is just an easy request that your husband should be able to fulfill. Like, I can't imagine what the battle would be like. No, I love
0: it when he gets shoe prints on the couch. It brings me joy. I mean, it's probably that the husband doesn't want to speak up to his father. Family dynamics can be complicated. And it sounds like the husband doesn't super value the rule in the first place, which to me feels like the husband doesn't adequately value the letter writer's labor in cleaning up. Right. Um. As well as sort of cultural norms and values. But so, yeah, I mean, I, I there may be some interpersonal challenges here, but this isn't regardless not a heavy lift or shouldn't be. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, uh, if he is laboring under the illusion that this is easy and fun for you, you know, he will no longer have that excuse once you guys have that conversation. You can say. I, I I don't like that. It's not fun for me. It's not no big deal. It's not I was already in the bathroom with a mop. Might as well. Um, <laughs> it's work. And, and I don't want to do unnecessary work when, you know, four seconds of taking his shoes off would fix this problem. Yeah, I, I, I never have a ton of sympathy when the problem is always someone else is like, well, you've always done this for me. And I never thought about it very much. Why is it a problem now? Yep. Not not an approach to marriage or cohabitation that i think um, engenders goodwill and mutual respect the subject of this next letter is poly wedding dilemma dear prudence i'm preparing to marry my beloved partner and a question of etiquette in our poly-friendly world has arisen two of my best friends are in a relationship with another couple jeff and tanya while my partner and i are supportive of their relationships Neither of us care very much for these two specifically, as we don't feel that they are a particularly healthy influence on our friends. Think lots of wild partying when there was none before, etc. We are paying for our wedding by ourselves and are on a tight budget. Is it appropriate to only invite our two friends or do we need to invite Jeff and Tanya too? Fix this. Fix this. Come up with a perfect answer. I feel like this is not a
0: question about Polly. It's a, this is Ooh, just a wedding deep. etiquette question. That's deep. And it depends on a couple of things. What does is does it everybody el- else getting a plus one? And are the two best friends not just in a relationship with this couple, but in a relationship with each other, which is unclear to me?
1: Yeah, I, I have that same question, which leads me to think that this is a poly question because it does depend on the configuration of this polyamorous relationship. All right. Um, so I'm going to fight you on that one. But yeah. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, so the question is, like, are all four of them together? And you say they're in a relationship. Like, how long have they been together? Is this the last, like, two months? Or have they been involved for, you know, two years? Um, you know, I, I don't know. So, it, you know, if it's two of your best friends are separately in a relationship with a pre-existing couple, and you invite both of your best friends as individuals and give them a plus one— you know, yeah, it's likely Jeff and Tanya are going to be there. It would be strange to invite your best friend and not a plus one unless you were doing that for everyone, right? Like, unless it was one of those weddings where it was just like, we're just not doing plus ones, Um, which would be kind of unusual and some people might get their feathers ruffled. But if if your best friends are already in a relationship with one another and they're also seeing Jeff and Tanya, you know, you could certainly just invite your best friends as a couple, which is a plus one, and then... Because then they have
0: a date to the wedding. The point of a plus one is, like, you have somebody built in to hang out with at the wedding. Right.
1: Not that everyone who's important to you is going to be able to come with you.
0: Right. So, yeah, I think it depends on that. But I also depends on – I mean, I think that also this question is, do I have to offer a plus one if I don't like who the plus one is? Yeah. And I – I think in general, you need to apply whatever your rules are evenly, sort of fairly, unless the plus one is a person who is genuinely toxic or your ex who you don't want at the wedding, not just like they throw wild parties. You know, I'm not hearing anything in this letter that makes me think like they're going to ruin the wedding or cause a scene just that like you don't have a lot of distaste for you don't have a lot of taste for them and you don't want to pay for their dinner right because
1: there's a big difference between they party a lot and I don't like it versus I think the odds are really good that they're going to get wasted at my wedding and say something rude to my husband in which case like yeah that that sounds like actually a bigger issue that you would want to deal with but if it's just I'm not nuts about them or the kind of relationship they have with my friends that's less of a justification
0: yeah. And therefore, I think you have to fall back on applying whatever your plus one rules are consistently here, regardless of whether or not you dick these people. Yeah,
1: it is one of the downsides of, you know, polyamory is that it's easy to disapprove of your friend's partners because everyone's tastes are very subjective. Um, and the more partners your friend has, the likelier just 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 in terms of a numbers game that you're not going to like some of them. Um, so it, it can create additional complications because there's always the classic, you know, advice question, which is I hate my friend's boyfriend. I hate my friend's girlfriend. And, you know, with Polly, it can be I hate three of my friend's girlfriends. I really like the fourth and their boyfriend is OK. Um, and that's, you know, tricky. But good luck. Yeah. Have And congratulations. Have a great wedding. Yeah, have a great wedding. And um, if it's possible to politely uh, restrict your guest list, I hope that you're able to do that. Well, Jacqueline, I don't know if we hit 30%, but I certainly think we helped provide some clarity to a number of people navigating a difficult and a burdensome system. Would you agree?
0: I would absolutely agree. Awesome. I feel more clear.
1: Awesome. Good. Okay. I'm glad that we're in agreement. I think that we have made the world a slightly better place at least under the you broke it you bought it policy. <laughs> um thank you so so much for all of this and uh please, you know, Come back to the show anytime and dispense um, some more wisdom. We would love to have you. I would love to if you have got more questions like that one. I'll Next time I'm in the inbox, I will just do a search for nude beach and see what comes up.
0: Excellent.
1: All right, Jacqueline, take Thank care. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dear prudence to subscribe.